Hello everyone, we are back. We are UK Motor Talk. My name's Mike, hello. My name's Ben, hello. My name's Graham, hello. And I'm Dave. And where the, where's Jim gone? Jim's disappeared. Everyone's confused me. I've been away for a couple of weeks and we've got a Ben instead of a Jim. But hello, Ben. And it, hello, exactly. everyone. How are we? What's happened is we've replaced Jim with a newer model. Uh, no, we haven't really. I need to explain because we have a guest with us this evening. So we have Ben Hooper, who is from Classic Retro Modern. And we met the other day. You've met some of the team before, but, uh, but you and I met at the SMMT day in Hampshire, which was an opportunity to drive all things SUV <laughs> and some things not SUV. And we got chatting, partly because, or largely because, I saw an Audi 80 parked in the car park, and Andrew, who edits and produces the show, said, I think I know who drives that. And it was you, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, what other idiot would bring a 1980 sports saloon with nearly 170,000 miles to a country house full of brand new electric SUVs and full of the best and brightest of uh, the national automotive journalism industry? I would, incidentally. I'm exactly the kind of person that would do exactly that. And we'll come back to sports saloons in a bit. But it's an absolute pleasure to have you along. So thank you for coming and joining us this evening. As it is to be here. Tell us a little bit about what it is that you do. I've been writing my column in Classic Retro Modern for over a year now. I was brought on by um, Gavin Brightwaite-Smith of Petrol Blog fame to give an insight into what it's like to be so-called the next generation of classic car enthusiasts. So I'm 20 years old, I'm at university. And I run a Volvo 480 and the Audi 80 Sport as my two car fleets, depending on which one is working at that time. <laughs> and so I give an insight as to what it's like to be an enthusiast, what challenges we face, and some of the issues that could be facing the industry at this time and how we might go about solving them, as well as some of my escapades when I have them. I had a thought about this the other day, because normally I'm the baby of the group, right? I'm in my mid-30s. And we're going to say no more about that. But when I was at uni, I also ran uh, an 80s and 90s car. And in those days, they were old. So I ran an XR3i. And at that sort of time, they were sort of banger money still. They hadn't quite reached the point where they were classic, really. It was, what, 2008, I think, I left. So these cars were late, late 80s, early 90s. So they were you know, getting on 20, 20 years, 18, 20 years old. And it was quite unusual to see someone driving something like that because they were they were bangers. It occurred to me, and I had a, a moment of absolute panic, that the equivalent these days is for a 20-year-old to be driving a car from like 2002, which in, in my mind is not an old car. And I said, oh my God, what, what's happened? And suddenly, I, it's, it's like that bit in Back to the Future, you know, where Jennifer sees them and goes, I'm old! And it just <laughs> What happened there? The wonderful irony of the, you know you're you're talking about cars from the eighties and nineties, and at that stage I was rotisting the damn things new straight from launch. <laughs> so you know we have a time warp perspective uh, uh, on some of those cars, but I, I would agree with you, Ben. The eighty and ninety Audis were were good cars. Yeah, quite Spartan, but not agricultural, and that's that's kind of why. Well, as well as the family connection with the, the Audi Quattro, that kind of. <laughs> raised me in a way um in terms of my car tastes um on one hand i like to have v retro toys in my cars the volvo was full of them but on the other hand i appreciate the solidity of the audi and they're just 
both very competent cars but in different ways so as a two-car garage they make an interesting mix almost like chalk and cheese which <laughs> the, the volvo does it actually look like a block of cheese but <laughs> yes um that analogy does work it's a great looking car we, we were speaking about this funnily enough a couple of podcasts ago because we had one pull in at work uh, a metallic red one and it was the first time i've seen one for a long long time yeah and i remember as a kid thinking it just looked like the front end was upside down because the gr- the grill was under the front bumper yeah but as time time's gone on i think possibly it's my favorite of the volvo shapes i absolutely love those and you, you passed your test in yours didn't you yes i did indeed actually so we picked the 480 up in 2019, 650 quid as a non-driver. It started, but it needed a new map sensor, so it wouldn't run, basically. We recommissioned it, and I, I learned to drive in it. And once I passed, we got the bodywork done. And so that was that was good for a year until it got well, hit by the bin lorry in January of 2022. Uh, after which, yeah, it was repaired by the insurance company because the, the bin lorry company paid out. So that was able to be done. But yes, ever since... Talking about the design, actually... I actually had the the fortune of meeting Frank Stevenson at the Silverstone F1 a couple of years back. Oh, yeah. And had a really passionate chat with him about cars and design, including things like the Isuzu Piazza Turbo and why it just looks amazing. And Mm. since meeting him, I've had a much deeper appreciation of car design. And before, I liked the Volvo because it was just so different. But now I look at it with another lens. I think, actually, I can appreciate the fact that it's got... a an almost clamshell bonnet. I can appreciate the lines on it and how how it all comes together and works as a shape. And it, it's actually a designed car as opposed to the Audi, which although it's it's Gijaro lines, it's very much a styled car. And there is a difference mm. when you actually think about it. So yeah, I've, I've come to appreciate that in in new ways. Not least also the way it drives because I find every car I buy, I appreciate the Volvo in a new way. <laughs> I think the Volvo's little bit of an orphan isn't it because it was initially designed for the US and at yes. the very last minute they they canned it for the US so it's almost like a what could have been and what Volvo thought America wanted at the time there's some really interesting little bits on them I and mean, it's obviously Volvo's safety record is very well known but it's it's got the big bumpers which you know of that era weren't quite as well integrated as they are now world cars now have bumpers that look the same the world over the the days of the Americans having shelves bolted to the front and back of god but it's still yeah exactly but it's still got really geeky things for for people like me car spotters it's still got you can see it's got the side marker light thing still Mm. on the back of the car and you're thinking that wouldn't be there if it was just going to europe Mm. and the rest of the world that's there because it was designed for the states and that's a really nerdy thing that i spot so i love things like that as well and the fact that you got to chat to um suddenly as legendary as frank stephenson who let's be fair does have a bit of an eye that's lovely that you get to appreciate the things on your own car through having spoken to somebody of such a gravitas and it transpires he's also a motocross fan which my father is as well so we were able to strike up a connection over that as well which i thought it's always good to learn the story behind the person that gets to design that because if you think about a guy who's designing the future of transport having cut his teeth on motocross bikes in the 70s thinking that is perspective really (laughs) yeah it all comes down to the fact all all these guys you know that have uh, built huge reputations as designers they're still basically car nuts. They're just in yeah. the position, for, usually the financial position, where they can uh, collect far better cars than any of us can afford and develop huge collections which reflect their own personal tastes. But but they're still, at the bottom of it, they're car nuts. It's interesting you say that because I was watching uh, an interview the other day and it was saying that supercar designers, 
that will design many, but generally speaking, not be able to afford to buy the cars that they've designed. So they'll see them, but very rarely be able to collect them, which seems mad when you think about it. Because as a car nut, you sort of see car designers, like Ian Callum, for example, as sort of superstars, don't you, rock stars of that type of design, I guess. And you sort of think, well, they must have a massacre. I mean, Ian, Ian Callum does have quite big garages that happen, but <laughs> ne- nevertheless, there, there are a number of designers that don't. But it is, it is fascinating. And what I find really interesting is when you do get to speak to them, they really appreciate people that really appreciate their work. Because they have a vision, they, they commit pen to paper. And if you take something like, um, so some concepts work out to be quite close to the actual finished design. So if you think of the new Mini, so the one from 2001, comes quite close to the original concept. But other cars, you see them, you think, the concept of that looks amazing. And the finished result isn't necessarily the same. So we saw the Honda E, so the City E, um, at Geneva when it was released. And you're like, wow, it's a Peugeot 205 mixed with a Golf and it's just, it looks amazing. And for me, the finished result's pretty cute and it looks kind of like an, a city, but it's not quite the same as the original concept. Whereas some cars, you, know, you can see the designer's vision and you can see that they've managed to keep their way and see that, that vehicle produced. And that sometimes that gets diluted over time. And, and, and the new Mini is probably a good example of that, where you have yeah. curved glass at the back, very expensive to produce. And a one-piece clamshell bonnet, again, very expensive to produce, which over time, various elements get slightly diluted. Mm, yeah, or the, the aforementioned Azuzu Piazza, pretty much straight from concept to production in six months, because they just said, yeah, we want that, just do it. I love it. Increasingly rare, though, isn't it? Because the bean counters will uh, dictate what actually hits the streets, because they'll go through every nut and bolt and every washer and uh, dictate changes that uh, show cost savings, so... The revolutionary designer, the visionary designers, it's much more difficult unless they're going for an absolute top-of-the-market supercar product for them to get their ideas all the way through because there's too many people chipping away at it. You know, with all due respect, Michael, Ford, you know, is a, is the classic example of that. Ultimately, oh, yeah. the, the bean counters run the whole show. You look at the launch of the Mark V Escort and Mark III arrived, so the shape that came after mine. You could see as time went on, they, they chiseled away and chiseled away. But even things like independent rear suspension became a solid beam. It was launched and the press absolutely panned it. Everyone <laughs> hated it. And it was interesting. I was reading an autocar article from 2001 and it was, uh, it was one I kept. I used to buy them as a kid from the library because when they, when they were finished with the library, they were 10p. So you could buy them. And I'd kept this particular one. And it was the launch of the new Focus. And it was, I think, something along the lines of the car that would change forward, you know, this bold design, um, which I think nothing that they'd produced subsequently has has had the same sort of impact that that car has had. If you got from the sort of blobby Marxist Escort into into that um, into that, that Mark One Focus in what must have been 98, I suppose. And the article was when Ford got it wrong and it was letting the bean counters determine how the car is designed and, and quite rightly i can imagine that looked nothing at all <laughs> like the original concept sketches and, and i can imagine that's probably quite disheartening as a designer to see that i remember the 1990 debacle where um ford got an absolute kicking and rightly so i mean i was a serial car magazine reader even then i mean it's probably about um about your age ben i mean there you go young man oh god i'm getting old but i remember reading and it was universal the the hatred for you know what ford had done was universal and i thought at the time well they'd been a bit harsh and then sort of started reading more and more about it and the people you know all the names that you 
you recognize from the time and again this is showing my people like um ljk set right and all basically anyone who wrote for car magazine who were the sort of the doyens then of anything that you listened to you listened to car and they absolutely hammered it but it wasn't just them it was everyone it was the dailies mm-hmm. it was auto express it was autocar autocar and motor as it was then that again is showing my age all of them basically universally said what the hell have you done here you know you you've got so much brand loyalty you've got everyone loves fords they all look good you you all want to have one and you've just basically gone and taken everyone for granted with this thing and cut things to the bone and and they soon put it right i mean fair play to them they sort of <laughs> i think they started on day 1 sort of trying to put the cars right but it was i mean i remember even then thinking this is this is unprecedented that the whole thing's you know, we're almost at edsel levels here it was it was it was that bad. <laughs> Just picking you up on one thing there, which I must do. The name LJK Setrite. Now there's a name from the past. Yeah. That was when I was a youth and reading the magazines. That was when they were still in uh, sort of Roman typeface, and we we <laughs> would receive receive the car magazines chip, chipped out of a tablet of stone. Yes. <laughs> oh, and all the wheels are square, of course. Yeah. I miss him. He was great. He would insult anyone and just uh, tear them to pieces. You know, he was a man of uh, many words, most of them um, uh, capable of uh, destroying uh, industries and destroying uh, car companies. But uh, he meant well. He meant them to get better, not to yep. give up. It was a bit of a golden era, I think. He, Him, Jeff Daniels, Phil Llewellyn. I mean, I know Gavin Green's still around. I mean, these are all people from car. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah Leonard Setright was... Um, he was an eccentric even sort of in the later days when I was reading his stuff, but he was very erudite. He'd put the knife in, but he'd do it in a in a very um, well-spoken way, shall we say. Hmm. <laughs> um, to- actually, talking of designers and talking about the, the 480, I mean, it's just occurred to me, I think I'm right in saying that the 480 was part designed by Peter Horbury, who I was very sorry to learn recently had passed away. And there's a man who was very responsible for... Um, Volvo's fortunes turning from being bricks to rounded off bricks and you know he's he was with Volvo for a very long time and had a a big hand and I think you know he's he's one of those people that's unless you're a car magazine reader you won't really know who he was but he was one of those unsung heroes who was very very influential but basically kept in the shadows really. Yes I think if I remember correctly Peter Horbury he productionized the front nose treatment to finalize how the grill was going to go because there was real debate about how to fit it in because Volvo insisted on having a Volvo grill and he eventually I think put it underneath the front bumper which I still think is a very innovative thing to do even though it's rarely seen it's it's just think yeah I, I quite like that and so sort of finished off John DeVries's uh, original concept and uh, got it into production. It's a good-looking car. I mean, I'm not just saying that because you're here. I mean, it, I've always <laughs> liked them. I worked with someone who had one, and he had more than one, actually, because he liked them so much he got a, a facelift. But he said, what other car can I get for this money that's got pop-up headlights and that's actually practical mm. and I can put stuff in the back? He, he just loved the pop-up headlights. <laughs> it is a car that beats the system. Yeah, it is, it's just quirky everyone likes quirky and it's fun it's a fun thing and uh, you know volvo having fun is a thing to celebrate really well it was then now they're sort of all over it aren't they but um, back then they were still just about going okay we've done the 850 what can we do now 850 was a good car very good estate car 
I have this week looked at a Fiat X19, which is my dad's favourite uh, favorite car. And there's one there's one for sale currently. Price has just dropped a bit. It looks very solid. It's, uh, it's the finale or the grand finale edition in that sort of metallic solid. red. Solid? you sure? Relatively. And I said it tentatively <laughs> as well. Um, uh, but it, it, it looks it looks pretty good. You need to look at it from underneath. Put it on a hoist and uh, gasp. Well, potential costs. There was a, there was an advisory for excessive corrosion to the front floor pan, and then and then three days later, a pass with no mention of it. So I'm I'm, I'm making the assumption there'll be a receipt for that work somewhere. Um, the or top not. of it looks pretty good, apart from some saggy seat covers. Nevertheless, I'm what a, Do it. a unique looking thing. Really Do it. Is. Go on. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Mid-engined. Well, so mid-rear-engined. Pop-up headlamps, obviously. Hence why it popped into my head. Targa top. And they, they are quite cool. I, I mean, it's not for me, obviously. It's trying to convince Dad to buy it because he's always wanted one. It's his favourite car. Good with a MIG welder? No, but I, I have a, a, a workshop full of people who can weld. So that is something. I can employ them to be getting on with it rather than me having to do it myself, I suppose. I would like to learn. I have to admit, it's a skill, one of those skills I definitely want to learn. Can you work, Ben? Uh, that is something that I've been needing to do, and it, it's it's something that I've just find the time and the space because I don't have a garage really, so everything I do has to be done outside. Um, yeah. uh, so it, it's about looking at the weather forecast and also getting the equipment. Luckily, I think my uh, my housemate's boyfriend knows how to weld, so I might be taking a trip down to Exeter sometime to get the Volvo sills looked at. But yes, yeah, it's it's about either knowing people or just getting the facilities right. Classic car maintenance is one of those things that's really griped me because I, I want to be better. I should be better, but lacking the facilities, it's limited me on what I feel I can achieve. <laughs> Fixing the Audi's throttle cable with duct tape bought from the student union shop on campus car park last year is one of my proudest automotive moments. And <laughs> it kind of shouldn't be because, I mean, I know people my age who are so like doing like engine rebuilds and like sort of applying upgrades sometimes well sometimes not <laughs> um but i feel like yes I, sh I am proud of that but what can i do more because my dad's helped me out a lot over the years but oftentimes he would just think no it's probably best if i just do it myself because it's probably not worth getting it wrong because we need the car to be working because i don't have a modern car so the classic cars have got to be reliable, basically. Yeah, running again the next mm. day. And that's that's the really tricky thing. I mean, I, I really learned by buying a rubbish classic car. My first XR3 was a dog. I didn't have much opportunity to do anything other than have to learn. And it, it, again, it was the same sort of thing, really. My flat had a garage, but it was really narrow, so you couldn't really work on the car in the garage. So you had to park it out the front. So whatever you were doing at the end of the evening, you had to get it back into some sort of rolling condition to either push it back in or push up to the garage door you couldn't and it was in a communal car park my garage was sort of under the flat so it was like an overhang from the flats above and i could just nose the car in so if it was raining it wasn't quite so bad because i could i could stay mostly dry but there's pictures of me laying underneath the thing on a bit of carpet in the snow so i, I have been there and, and done that and really only by the car being so terrible did i, did I learn so that sounds like a picture that needs to be digged out for the uk motor talk calendar <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, probably you know, I would have I would have been almost exactly your age at the time as well. So yeah, it, I I I've been there and I've done that. And I know exactly what that's like. Yeah, I changed the gearbox on a Austin A60 Cambridge, 
And I never realized how heavy the bloody things were. And I didn't have a, a jack at the time. I mean, it's many, many, you many on your years chest, ago. I'm guessing. I did, actually, in the end. And the old windless system up through the top of the transmission tunnel, winding around with a piece of stick and a rope to pull it back into place. But, um, but it worked. The fact that I was working, as you were saying, under a, a block of flats, but also cursing the architect that decided to floor the garage area in cobbles. And oh. it didn't matter how much oh. carpet you had down, the cobbles were agony. But anyway, yeah. I've had a lot of crap cars. I remember working underneath the car, and it, this is my own fault entirely, one of the many injuries I've sustained over the years. But I'd been wire-wheeling something or other, and decided to lay on the floor, managed to get a piece of the wire wheel embedded <laughs> in my back underneath the Ouch. skin. Yeah, and that ended up quite... Um, been quite uncomfortable. I think it's still in there. I've no idea where it went. I've never managed to find it. So I'm one with that piece of wire wheel now. But I do remember you mentioned about your having to fix your throttle cable. Probably the most embarrassing one for me was I take it this was my second XR3, or maybe my third. I'd gone down, I'd parked right where all the residential flats were in the uni because I always used to park as far away from everyone as I possibly could. And I had a, I think it was something like a Viper alarm system on this car, which was fitted in the 90s. So you get an idea as to the quality. And the battery went flat in the remote. I went to un unlock it. It didn't do it. So I thought, okay, no problem. Just open the door. I opened the door. And of course, it went absolutely bat crazy. Absolutely. And just the alarms all went off. Everyone was trying to sleep. It was probably, I've been in, in the library till quite late. So it was probably 10, 11 o'clock. Then some blokes with a guitar came over and started playing songs next to me. Like, find myself another place to fall and songs about breaking down and all that kind of thing. I've just stood there waiting for the AA to arrive. And I'm I, at this point, I've popped the bonnet and I'm ripping bits of the alarm system out and stuff everywhere. I think I got towed back in the end for that. I can't remember what it was. I was like, just please just get me away from here. Just remember dying of absolute embarrassment. But it is one of the very few times that the cars actually, you know, the older cars really let me down. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting how... Because talk about how it was parked on at university, the reception the Audi because for my first year I was living in halls and the Audi was kept on site and it was interesting how people I don't judge people by looks but of all ages you wouldn't associate that person with being interested in older cars just walking up and just being curious and just taking pictures of it for socials and just the fact that because the Audi which let's face it it is just a bog standard saloon. From the 1980s, really, um, front-wheel drive, 1.8 injection engine. The components itself, it isn't very special, but when it all comes together, it has that presence of, I think, that's only heightened with age. So with you were talking about in the late noughties with the XR3, they were getting rare then, let's face it. But even then, as you say, they're picked up for banger money. Audi ATB2s, they are very unusual, but if you don't know what they are, you would just see an old car. And that idea of it mm. just being an old car seems to gel with the Generation Z and like the, the tech generation, which is it's kind of an interesting crossover with the general culture because there's been a lot of articles lately how Generation Z are getting back into the 90s, noughties, and even, well, even 80s culture because, yeah, it's an escape from the internet. And it's interesting how my generation, at least, is trying to escape from this, this reality by going back in time. It's, it's kind of... Oh, why I love classic cars so much. It is very weird seeing everyone dressed in 90s clothes. So I, I see the same 90s shoes, the crop tops, and I wonder 
how long it would be before the Adidas poppers come back in. Because you didn't have a sort of chav reputation for these things back then. You were either from the countryside or a townie. And if you're a townie, you wore Adidas poppers. And if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're listening and have no idea what I'm talking about, these are tracksuit bottoms that used to have the three stripes down the side, traditional Adidas stripes, and they opened. For some unfathomable reason, I have no idea why they opened, but they used to popper down the side. And so they were called Adidas poppers. It wasn't some kind of weird drug that we were all doing in the 90s. One thing I have noticed with younger generations, and this is something that I noticed particularly when I was at a careers fair the other day, is when people come up and talk to me about cars, they say, oh, I'm really interested in classic cars. I say, what do you mean by classic? They say 90s JDM. Mm, yeah. And when I was mid-noughties, I suppose those sort of formative years for me, when people were going out and they were driving things like Starlet Turbos and or Starbos, as we called them, <laughs> and Nissan Pulsars, that kind of thing. Yeah. I remember one of my dad's mates had a Nissan Skyline. I think it was an R33. Serious but a kit. He said, did your lad want it as his first car? And it was, I think, seven grand, seven and a half grand he wanted for this thing, which was about the money then. I can't remember if it was an R33 or an R32. I, it's, it was many years ago, it was about 18 years ago. I remember it being a metallic grey colour, and of course I wanted it, because why wouldn't you? It was very cool. Yeah. And it was about seven grand to insure. But nevertheless, the cars then hadn't really reached the sort of pricing and cult status, yeah. perpetuated, I guess, by the Fast and Furious movies before they became spy thriller chase movies, which I don't really understand anymore. But when they were still about street racing and the rest of it, they were about these Japanese cars, and a lot of us were out there buying them because they were a great way to get a lot of performance for not a lot of money. Yeah. These days, we've started to notice that the price of these cars are going up. So if you think Civics, for example, oh. are probably a great example yeah. of this, and, and you found something else, didn't you, on the internet? Yes, yes. So firstly, a bit of context. Um, I personally have a bit of a thing against imported cars. I like... Cars saw the UK market from new. However, there's a bit of an exception to this rule today in that I found on Car and Classic a 1991 Mitsubishi Lancer GTI. Now, a lot of you will be thinking, what the hell was that? And <laughs> I am a bit of a specialist when it comes to obscure performance cars, um, like, for example, the Austin Allegro 1750 SS, the Zuzu Piazza from earlier. Most of the Mitsubishi Colt range, which had a turbo in it and stuff like that. And this car called out to me because, yes, it's an import, but it was imported in 1995. So in period when it was new. And importantly, it has full length UK number plates. So not the short little <laughs> import plates. It's got full length UK plates, which is a big tick for me because I always think the little ones look wrong. And I saw this. I thought, yeah, this must be maybe one of the only one or two, maybe three, a handful either way of these cars in the UK. And I've been looking for a Mitsubishi Galant GTI four-wheel drive, four-wheel steer, because they were sold here for ages, because I just, yeah, that's just me. <laughs> I drove one in period. Oh, yeah? Fabulous car. Oh, nice. I'm glad to hear it was actually good, because most of the cars I liked are flawed. Um, I'm sure the, the, there's something uh, uh, trying to maintain four-wheel steer. It's going to be a nightmare these days, but... But yeah, it's nice to hear it's actually actually that good. But yes, yeah, this uh this Lancer, it's up for four nine nine five. Just under five grand. Bargain. Yeah, exactly. For a performance Japanese car, 
from the 1990s in original condition. I'm not into the modification scene, it's, unless it's period modified. But that that's another that's a segue. I'm not I'm not quite ready for yet. But yeah, this car is my ideal spec because it's it's usable. It's about 164,000 miles, but it's very clean, so you can use it and enjoy it without risking it. And it got me thinking that it reminded me of a trend I've been seeing recently in the classic car world, especially in prices, where sellers keep thinking that rarity equals value and it means they can put a huge price on it that someone's just not going to want to pay. And that was highlighted to me again today when I saw an advert for a 1975, I think, Audi 80 GT B1. Now, the B1 GT, um, I believe, I'm not entirely sure, was later replaced by the GTE, the engine from which went into the Mach 1 Golf GTI. And this car is absolutely immaculate. It's been completely nut and bolt restored. It's done like 70,000 miles, completely better than new. And the guy's asking £37,500 for it. Wow. Bloody hell. Optimistic. Yes. Are you sure there's not the decimal place slip there somewhere? Well, I think the, the three perhaps should have been a typo, because I think seven and a half grand is bang on the money for that sort of car, because these cars, they rusted to nothing. They're exceptionally rare. And that, on one hand, makes them very interesting, collectible to, to people like me, but... You kind of have to be someone like me to actually care about it in the first place. Is it the rare but nobody cares? I think the thing is, with with the restoration, and I was following a conversation earlier on today on one of the Facebook forums, and this guy was saying, Look, I've got a Sierra Sapphire Cosworth. I want a guy up north that can do a full nut and bolt for me. And people were saying, look, great that you want to do it, but if you want this really done, and I mean really done, that car could end up owing you forty five, forty seven thousand pounds easily. Buy one done. And the thing is, we we know from having taken apart cars and restored them and done bits and pieces to them, rarely, rarely does it pay. It has to be something very, very unusual, very rare, very collectible, like a classic Merc, classic Porsche, whatever it might be, where you can justify spending a big sum of money to make a car that perfect. And to, a, to an extent that perfect that you might not necessarily want to use it, which is another a whole other debate, because I, I tend to find if a car's too good, you then don't want to use it on the road, which is a ma massive shame. Ironically, uh, Ben, I saw the auction piece that you circulated about the Lancer, and bizarrely it was the second one that had come my way today. Right at the other end of the price spectrum for the, for the Lancer, there's a fully prepped uh, rally art version, the race mm. version. Yeah. Or race stroke rally version, and that is a quite astronomical number, but it's only one of three, so that's coming up for auction, I think, this week or next week, imminently. That's quite interesting because obviously, the market for race prep cars you're kind of buying not just the car but the access to the events as well, which can make a rare car much more appealing because you can turn up to that event with something rare and it's not just there because it's rare it's there because it can compete and it's as you were saying about the restorations of the cars if they're particularly rare being it worth it but in some cases they're so rare that nobody's going to want it when it's done and if i was looking at that Audi now i would actually prefer it if he had kept it in its original paint sort out the rust yes but kept the original paint because then it's got its pattern it's got its history and i can enjoy it for what it is, because 
I, I can't. I struggle to think that there's someone out there who would be paying forty grand. That's that. That is quattro money for what is a one point six front driving Audi ATB one. Lovely looking thing and great fun. I'm sure. And as a historical timepiece, quite significant as being related to the Mark One GTI. But it's that niche where it's not a seller's market. The people who want it, they know what they're looking for. They will happily wait for the right car. And I think people these days, we're seeing it with Volvo 480s as well, oddly enough, because they're so unusual to look at, people are listing them for five grand more than they're worth because they think they're just the pop-up headlights, rare, that'd be worth a pretty penny. And like we've seen several cases of restoration projects, barn fine cars, not rusty, but being bought up by people who clean them and then list them up for like seven and a half grand for a car that's been unrestored, basically a garage find. There do seem to be two very divergent schools of thought as far as uh, classic car restorations go. And one is the one that you've just particularly cited, which is uh, clean it up a little bit, keep it original, make sure it runs, and then sell it. And if somebody then wants to restore it, uh, they can do so. And if they can invest sufficient funds to make it worthwhile, they can do so. And the other school of thought seems to be uh, the last nut and bolt restoration and bring it back to showroom perfection as it was better than showroom first left the world but probably better yeah indeed the amount of money you've got to invest to do that you will hardly ever recoup that and really that's uh that's something that is the province of uh, a museum collection rather than something you want to own and and appreciate and just drive occasionally I think if you if you buy it for yourself, who cares? Yeah, because it's it's your money. Do what you want with it. Yeah, <laughs> I always find it really amusing when when someone sells a car and then gets upset that the next person's done something to it. So if it worried you that much, don't sell it. You know, and, <laughs> and certainly, I think what we, what irritates me more is the way the market goes, based not necessarily on the rarity, because I can kind of understand why some things are more expensive because of the rarity or because of the provenance or because it's race prepped, whatever. I kind of get that. It's the find another. The Audi, yes, it's got a very, very niche market. It's got to be someone that wants that particular one. But could you find another like that? Probably not. So it's outrageously expensive, and it would probably cost you more than that to, to get a, a, you know, a basket case into that sort of condition. What really gets me is when you have cars which are, it, certainly in their day, are particularly cheap cars or cars which, which we had, which were a few grand, that are expensive not because they're a good car or because they're particularly rare, they're expensive because of the nostalgia of them. Yeah. So the Ford scene, which which I've, I've been part of for many, many years, is probably a good example of this. When I was, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to sort of prices of things, the amount of times you, you kick yourself. My wife's cousin's dad had an Audi Coupe, UR Coupe, with a Quattro system. It's so not the wide body one, but the same shape, you know, the long one. And that was, if I'd wanted it, I think mine for about three grand memory serves. So things, things like that. And the XR3s that I'd buy for 100 quid or 800 quid or 900 quid, all these things that disappeared down the line. These cars are now 10s, you know, or in some cases, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever it might be. And particularly good examples and particularly rarer good examples are are going for astronomical money. And these are, we've said this before, and I I won't go into too much detail because we've talked about this in great depth in the podcast, but, you know, you can buy a Ferrari. (laughs) <laughs> for the money that of, of a Ford. And the whole idea behind the Fords were that they were performance cars that could kick it to a Ferrari. And so it, it's quite interesting how you get this sudden 
it's almost like a scene tax and you get the same thing applies to parts. I don't know if you found the same thing for your car. So I bet you if there are parts on your car that are the same as a Quattro, I bet you they're twice the price they would otherwise be because they also fit a Quattro. My Audi 80 doesn't share all that much with the Quattro because it's got the four-cylinder GTI engine and it's front-wheel drive. However, and while a lot of it is standard shared VW parts, which means generally you can get servicing items in most parts, you'd be surprised what you can't get, such as when the starter motor failed just after I got it. We couldn't just get a new starter motor for a Golf because they, they didn't have them. So we had to get two bad ones and make a good one out of it to refit it. And so far it's been absolutely fine. But it's just bits like that that worry me for the future of the classic car scene. We mentioned earlier about how restoring cars to values where you can't use them. For me, as a young person, where I've kind of grown up with the dream of internal combustion classic cars for the rest of my life, while I am absolutely determined to fight for my right to be able to use these cars however I want for however long I can, I have to understand there is a chance, probably small if you ask me, that there will be a limited time on these cars. So I want to make the most of them now while I can. My Audi, I bought it with 145,000 miles. I have had no qualms using it as a daily driver in all weathers, taking it to Denmark and back, taking it to Le Mans and back, and just getting as much use and memories out of it. And of course, looking after it, I've wax oil, no, not wax oil, because that stuff's terrible, uh, cavity waxed the box sections <laughs> and like tried to keep on top of the rust and everything and, and kept it good. But it is shabby. It is in mid-90s, second-hand used territory, still a bit dignified, but it's it's had some use. But I like it like that. It's got a bit of a story. And it's, it's still a daily driver. It is. That's the main thing. Although for insurance reasons, uh, for this year at university where I'm living in the city rather than on campus, the Volvos had to take over because on-street parking makes an insurance premium go way too expensive to really consider. Plus, the parking situation outside my house on the road is quite tight. It's on a hill. And the Volvo with power steering, it's shorter, even though it's got less doors. It's just, it's just a breeze, really. I'm quite curious, actually, about this. We have people that are listening and interested in thinking, oh, I quite like the idea of running something classic, particularly some, I should imagine, interested in running things that may be 40 years old or older, particularly if they, if they live in a, in a ULEZ zone uh, or interested in not paying the tax or whatever on it. What's the insurance like for you? So when I, well, here's the thing, it all, it all depends on, on circumstances. So when I passed my test, the Volvo was 1,600 quid to insure for me as a 17-year-old, which might sound like a lot, but I've heard much worse rates for people with courses and fiestas and everything. And bear in mind, that was when I was living at home, which is in the, in the countryside near Winchester. So it's a relatively decent area, although there is a, there is a a bit of rural crime to worry about. Now, my parents were happy to help with the insurance because it's a family passion and we, we help each other out. And I understand that that is a privilege and that's why I'm very keen to get involved with the classic car movement to try and make it more accessible for other people because if it's not accessible, it's just going to die. And that's the biggest problem, as I've mentioned in my column in Classic Retro Modern, is that Yes, there are young people who are getting interested in running older cars, but right now it is a prohibitive dream. And as a movement, we should be trying to work out ways. I know that the, there's the young car rental scheme for like getting young drivers into classics for a year. But a lot of these young people, they can't really afford to have a pleasure car. So it's got to make sense as a daily as well. 
So that's why my suggestion is always choose your car wisely. So I was saying, does the car have five gears and a fuel injection? And if it's got that, then it's probably going to be viable for daily transport in whatever you're likely to need it to do in any modern context. And of course, insurance wise, the Audi was very expensive to insure for the first year because even after I passed my IM advanced driving test with a first, I phoned up the corn market insurers who do the specialist IAM cover. And I said, hi there, I've, I've passed my IM advanced driving test. I've got all my membership details here. Can you insure me on a 1986 Audi 80 Sport? And they just said, no, because of your age. And I kind of thought, even with the advanced driving test, they just will see a young driver and just look at the age. And I think it's come to the point where it's not actually about the car, it is just the age. So I had to go through the price comparison size to get a reasonable rate on the Audi, which ironically, it was cheaper to insure at university than it was at home, I think, because on university, I had on-site security team, cameras everywhere. It wasn't going to go anywhere. Armed guards around your Audi. Yes. So it, it, that was that was pretty secure. But as soon as I move maybe half a mile into the city, just like almost two grand. So that's why the Audis had to go back home on, on ice, basically, for the winter until um, I can use it again in the spring. I've told my dad to keep it running because I don't like cars sitting around for too long doing nothing because that's how they go wrong. So yes, insurance-wise, older cars with the smaller engines, they tend to be fine because... It's a bit of a myth. Um, I can't really back this up, but I've heard that there are some cars that are just not recognised by the modern insurance schemes. They have, they've got nothing to back it up against, so no data to compare it to to make advice. So they generally go for just the engine size, and that's all. So if I've always said, if I had to live in a ULEZ, I'd probably get an Austin Allegro, preferably a 1750, because I just love those. But if I had to just potter around a city Austin Allegro with the 1.3 and the 1.5 just be perfect just all you need and they do make sense you just got to choose the right car and whenever I'm recommending a car to someone I always say classic cars are my passion but I'm not going to recommend them to you until you're sure uh, you're comfortable with the safety implications because classic cars are not dangerous but you need to be aware that if things do go wrong, you might be at a high risk of ending up worse off. That's why when I've got a Ukrainian friend who is keen to build her life in the UK and thinking about down the line, learn to drive, what cars would I suggest? And I say, well, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Please don't say Lego, you're scaring back out of the country. Well, they're not that bad. <laughs> they're not that bad, I'm sure. BL stuff has a bit of a, a, a reputation, doesn't it? They've been bullied by the Ford gang for years <laughs> because they haven't got a blue oval on the front. We well, go. quite right. We should probably cover. So we'll just say, just to, to sort of wrap up a bit about insurance, I did have to wait when I first insured my first XR3i because the insurance company deemed it as a high-performance vehicle, which I think is hilarious. It's 105 horsepower. Exactly. And that's the same thing I get. Back when I was uh, starting to drive, it was more a case of they'll go by the risk of the car you were driving. So when I went from a Fiesta to uh, an Audi A4, a B7, in, in about 2007, I think it was, 2008, my insurance went down from 1200 to 800 quid. I could insure a turbocharged turbo intercooler Volvo cheaper than I could insure something like a Corsa at the time. So a lot of it just does come down to the risk, uh, how safe you are and how likely you are to knock someone else off the road. Yeah. But I do need to come back to this, you say, about bullying the four boys, because the reason why 
I know certainly my colleagues here really wanted to have you on this evening is because we were stood there and we were talking about cars from the late 80s and you were saying about your, your passion for cars and you were saying uh, some of these cars which which I remember being new and being released and everything else and there were the cars that were around when I was a kid so I remember my parents had a maestro for example two maestros in fact one in beige because it didn't show the rust so much I thought um, they were all in beige oh god only produce beige. I'm looking at Dave here. He's been to the festival done exceptional and, and, and he's just chuckling to himself. I think it's probably hearing aid beige does seem to be the, the British Leyland colours. They're all in hearing aid beige. They all have the same door handles. That's my lasting impression of British Leyland stuff. Marina door handles. Yeah, they all have the same door handles regardless of what they are. The, the Allegro, funnily enough, is one of the cars. I'm going to circle straight back. Before we come off this, I must mention this. It's one of the cars, the original designer, he hated it when it came out, when it was produced, because it was nothing like what he'd originally designed. It wasn't that far off the clay prototypes. When you look at the pictures, the, the basic design kind of was there. But while it does look a little bit dumpy in places, I find nowadays when you look at the Steve Nissan Dukes and the crossovers with awful proportions, and you think, mm. actually, people beat up this small little, proper, quite efficient, really, car from the 1970s. And does it really deserve it? in hindsight, because you look at it and you look at some of the angles and actually, the some angles at some quarters, it actually has quite some pleasing sort of line work going on with how some of the lines sort of flow into each other. And when you look at the modern cars with like the, the googly eyes and the LEDs and like the, the lines that sort of have no direction and they're there for purpose and you think, something's not right here. What What's going on? What what, we, what have we come to as a society? But I don't really want to go into a societal debate tonight. <laughs> we'll move on from the all aggro. But what we must we must say, right? The one, and I, I digressed and I, I needed to digress, but I, I, I'm back on track here. The main reason that we really wanted to have you on this evening, it's been really fascinating talking to you and, and getting your perspective, but there was a conversation that triggered your presence here this evening. Uh, and, and this is an attempt by my colleagues to trigger me. And that is because we were talking about your love of cars and we were talking about your love of cars. And as I say, cars I remember being released and cars that I remember my family owning. And this, this series of particular vehicles is one that my granddad had three of. One which was great, one which was terrible, and one which was okay. The one that was terrible fell apart. One that was great was 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 great, as you probably expect. And you used the example of a car that was, in comparison, in your mind, terrible. And you said, the Ford Orion Mark II. So, right, tell me, what type of car is it? The car I want to talk to you about tonight is the R8 generation. Remember that, the R8 Mm-hmm. Rover 200 series and 400, because if, we, if we're doing a direct comparison with the Orion. The reason why I made that comparison, because when in 1989, when the R8 Rover 200 launched, it launched with a full suite of 16-valve engines, front-wheel drive, high build quality, inspired by the Honda collaboration that they did. It's not just a rebadged Honda, as people will tell you, because Honda knew how to make the car do the chassis development but with a lot of the ride input from uh, Rover because that was something that Honda struggled with, was getting the ride and the handling set up for European tastes. And Rover always had the problem with the build quality, as we've talked about. So they worked to their strengths and came up with the R8, which when it launched for about maybe a year and a half, the competition was scrambling to catch up because the, the Escort-based Orion that was on sale at the time, 1989, had been based off the car that had been launched in 1981. So it was, compared to the competition, 
they didn't really have anything that can compete with it. And of course, as we've spoken about the Mark V Escort that came afterwards, Ford still struggled to compete until probably midway through the Mark V, more towards the Mark VI facelift, once they got it sorted out. Because the Rover came along and people were like, hang on, Rover have pulled off this car while no one was looking. And for a time, a Rover became this almost like a yuppie, desirable car to be seen in the Rover R8. They were able to shift a lot of them in the first two or three years because they had that premium cachet, which meant they could charge more for a smaller car. I've got to query the fact that um, they were desirable and they produced a lot of them. They produced a lot of them because they filled a need, not because they were desirable. And the build quality initially was appalling. I was taken on a factory tour when, uh, of the production line for the 600. And the 600 yeah, was, was, was quite a good car. It was quite a good-looking car, uh, interesting range of powertrains. You know, there were blokes carrying bits of 600 bodywork around so their mate could weld them together. You know, they were so <laughs> far behind what uh, what was being done in Germany, what was being done in, in, in virtually anywhere in the Far East. They were years behind, which is why they ended up where they did. But their swan song, and I, funny enough, I saw one recently, just yesterday, was uh, a 75 V6, and it mm. looked wonderful. And it sounded absolutely glorious. BMW funded 75, of course, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And they did that with a Mustang engine, didn't they, in MG form as well, I seem to remember. That was after BMW had left. And there's always, amongst rover circles, the 75 is, seems to be a bit of a mixed bag because people think, yes, it is a great car, but did BMW set it up to fail by not really investing in it like they should have done? They launched it and then basically dropped it. You'll probably know the details better than I, but somewhere like six months after the launch, they revealed that they wanted to actually sell Rover. So they put all the development in and then left Rover just hanging, basically. Which is why I always look to the R8 as Rover gets it right. Because although, yes, they did have quality problems early on, as was pointed out, by and large, certainly by my experience of the one that I owned, the quality issues were nothing to do with how it was built, rather just general aging. So just a little bit issue with like the, the battery kept draining, which so many cars do of that age if they've been sat around, which mine had been. So for context, I owned a Rover 220 GSI three door with the Ford Sierra XR4i style rear quarter window and the spoiler body kit and the two liters T-series engine. And I'll admit, when I bought it, I kind of bought it in a bit of a, a panic because I need. I, I had set myself up to do this um, project for my A-levels, which was restoring the horsepower of a car through a full service. And I got to the point where I had to start the project, but I'd hadn't, I didn't have the car yet because the Volvo, that had too much wrong with it at the time, I think, for me to do a real test. And um, also I didn't want, didn't want to have a... Uh, we rely on one car, so we thought, well, it's a chance to get another car on the fleet, of course, as car enthusiasts do. I have to say, it's a brilliant, brilliant A-level project. Thank you. It, it, was, it was an interesting result. It was an interesting result, for sure. But I bought this car in a panic because I was just scouring car on Classic thing. What is there? What is there? What is there that, that, is, that is not stupidly priced, is not an absolute dog? And um, looks like I could do something with it. And I'm a little bit interested in And I saw this Rover 220 for sale. And the three-door body styles, I've all, it's always caused me as being really weird in a wonderful way. Because it looks like, when it's got the spoiler, it looks like a mini touring car. 
And that was before I realised that this car had its own racing series in the 90s. Did it? That passed me by entirely. Yeah, it, it did me too. It's like It was like a, a one-mate series like they do with Ginettas these days. And I went to view it down in Glastonbury, and it was the best car I had ever viewed. It was basically one owner from new. The guy bought it to commute from Taunton to Portsmouth twice a week. It was with the Navy. Garage stored from new, and compared to the MG Montego that I'd been looking at before... It looked like it, it would actually survive being kept outside <laughs> as opposed to disintegrating within a week. And sure enough, we thought, yeah, let's go for it. And okay, it had some teething problems. It hadn't been used very much for the past 10 years, but we got it back up to scratch and of course gave it the full service. So before we did the service, we put it on a dyno and it, it produced like 123 horsepower. And then we did the service, uh, put new tires on it as well because they were a bit shot. And um, it produced 122 horsepower. <laughs> I just thought, great. But that was a result. I could talk about that for the project. And the guy in the diner said, to be honest, with that result being so tight, um, it's, mm. it, it doesn't really that mean anything. Maybe. So, it, And he said it was, the best, it, it was the best example of a Rover R8 he had seen in years. After we did that, the, the car was became a pool car. My dad used it a fair bit. He quite liked driving it. He liked the engine response and stuff like that. Although it did it did remind him of his, his dad's SD1 with a very very light power steering that almost called him out on a couple of occasions. And once I passed my tests, the Volvo went in to get its bodywork done. That meant that I had to get to and from sick form. So I took the Rover. And it was ironic that it was cheaper to insure me on the Rover hot hatch than it was to insure on the Volvo because they just thought, oh, it's a Rover. It's an old man's car. Stereotype, insert things about top gear here and there, uh, beige and stuff. I, I'm so pleased that you said this because you, you'd said to me about the desirability of the Rover versus the equivalent Fords of the time. Yeah. And my memory of Rover is that it was the car at the beginning of every traffic queue. It was the Honda Jazz of its day. Mm. And it was the car... My granddad had one, and it's the car everyone's granddad had. Now, Honda, of the time, sort of had a, that same sort of reputation and arguably maybe still does. Yeah. But they did take a lot of inspiration in terms of the design, the amount of glass-to-body ratio, for example, they got from Rover. And it, it taught them a lot about European design. And I do think it's actually quite a handsome car. And there were bits that I really liked, like the sort of the insert at the top of the dashboard. I think it was wood, if memory served. Not damning with faint praise, are we? Oh, absolutely damning with faint praise. Um, <laughs> however, I'm not sure that it had the desirability amongst younger people that the Orion 1.6i gear and the escorts, the sportier escorts of the time and things had. Oh, that's just down to Fords being Fords, isn't it? Is it? Do you think they were trading a bit on the badge? I think at that point... So... My relationship with Ford is that I don't really have much of a connection with Ford because, as Ed Westby pointed out in his uh, critique on the new Capri concept SUV a few months back, Ford has always been at the top. Ford has been dominating for so long, and I've never really felt much to identify with in rooting for the winner because, well, they're the winner. So what am I proving by rooting for them? That doesn't mean they they made some bad cars because they are they're good cars. They win for a reason because they're priced very well, they're designed very well for their market, and 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 usually they they drive pretty well for their price. But I, I and I do just want sorry for cutting off. I do want a caveat when I say younger people in Orion. 
I probably mean people my age and not actually younger, younger people. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'll just point this out here. The people that had them were my age because my dad had one and my uncle had one. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and it was yeah. probably people in their 30s up. I want mm. to point that out. When I say younger, I do want to caveat that. The reason why people remember, I think Mark III Vauxhall Astras are also a culprit for being stereotypical old people's cars. And that's because mm. old people kept them for so much longer than the young people who bought them at the same time. And okay. they bought off, okay. they're often bought as last cars, kept in a garage, and that's why you see so many Rover R8s and Mark III Astras come out of garages absolutely pampered. A lot of other people bought them as like as executive, uh, not executive, but company cars, or like young cars for, for like young professionals and stuff. Because they were, if you look at the initial marketing for the R8, it was very much aimed towards the up and coming, thrusting businessmen, almost taking shots. They didn't quite have the guts to do it with the to go toe to toe with BMW. Not until the Rover 600, but with the Rover 200 was basically if you want a BMW but at a four run size. And yep. that's kind of the way they're marketing it. And But of course, people remember the Orions because the Fords had that scene. The Rovers, they were trendy, but they weren't. They never had that the weight for people to carry on loving them. Certainly not people like me. <laughs> Throughout that time to carry the flag. So that's how the only reason people remember them because they kept seeing them being driven by older people because the younger people had sold their Rovers five to ten years before that point that they started becoming popular in the Top Gear years, around 2002, 2003, when Jeremy Clarkson started making those jokes on the new relaunched Top Gear, which I think has a lot to answer for when it comes to the misrepresentation of these cars. Clarkson has a lot to answer for. Yes, indeed, indeed. Probably for, for me, my, my generation, the generation of Rover and MG and everything else that was attractive, in the, of that, that era, the R8 era, it was the Tomcat was the one everyone wanted. Yes. The Coupe. They had a somewhat legendary status. For us, it was the, the MGs that were the 25, 45 and 75. So the ZS, the ZT, the ZR. And they were the ones that we wanted because this was, I was not guilty of, but I was part of the max power generation. Yeah. So a lot of those those Astra Mark 3s, they became max power cars. Yeah. So you did see a lot of people that were you know, younger driving at the time usually with a lot of money and a lot of fiberglass lavished upon them. It was the, the era where you would, you would buy the, the bright yellow or the flip paint. Uh, and I actually really quite liked them in their time. They felt old inside. They felt dated because they've been based on the previous generation and everything else. But we did love them. And although we have to have this bit of banter between us because this is... This is how we are, and this is how car guys work. Yeah. We all know that we we all respect what each other are into, really, because it, everyone has, has different strokes. So long as it's kept within reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I appreciate that my, my weird bent for a, a 1989 Ford Orion is perhaps... Uh, it's only really recently that people have also started to sort of share in this interest. When I bought it 15 years ago, it was just an old car, and people didn't pay any attention now people stop and, 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 like you say, take pictures or have conversations with you about it yeah. because it's different. Yeah. And I think we can appreciate cars that we probably wouldn't have noticed 15, 20 years ago. I don't know about what you think, but you would have walked into the car park of your local home base <laughs> uh, and you would have seen you know, a, a load of Cavaliers parked in there. You would have seen probably your Audi 80s. You would have seen your Orions and Sierras and all these kind of things. And now it's, when's the last time you saw one of those? 
It hit home for me when I was playing Forza Horizon 2 on the Xbox, driving the Toyota MR2 Mark II Turbo, and it suddenly struck me, Luminec, when did I last see one of these on the road? They used to be everywhere when I was a kid in the mid-noughties, and they just went. You never see them now. Well, Jim will be gutted that he's missed having this conversation because he had a, not a Turbo, but a Mark II MR2, um, which he, he loved a bit in Goodwood Green, and I think still has a bit of a hankering for. Yeah. And again, a lot of these cars that have come obscure because they've got to a point where it just wasn't worth the money to yes. put into them, to maintain them, keep them going. And I find it incredible that the likes of more regular family cars, so cars like the Onion, have managed to survive this long. Where, where the hell have they been? Yeah. That means that someone has loved them that much that they still exist today because there are so many more modern cars just as run-of-the-mill your focuses and i don't know another example of this and astras of the world for example your, your everyday cars that have ended up in the bin yeah so i do want to take this opportunity just to say thank you for saving some of these cars and for sharing with us your passion i've really enjoyed talking to you about it and having a, a bit of banter so i really yeah. hope that we get the opportunity to do that again absolutely i'd be more than happy to come along hopefully down the line maybe we could get the onion out we could have a, a group test i'd be interested to see what you think yes i don't i don't own the rover anymore though so i might have to wait until i uh track it down and buy it again because i i do find myself it is one of those cars that once i sold it i realized why did i sell that that was the only car i've owned so far that i could get into that was dry inside the smell of leather, it's stuck <laughs> on the button all the time, no worries. And it's thought, You're why did I sell the classic that? dream here. <laughs> yes. But to round it out, I know we've been bantering about this. I must say, I'm not a Ford person, but if I had to name three Fords that I would respect enough to consider owning, it would be the Mark IV Cortina 3-litre S with the V6, nice, the Sierra yeah. XR4i, yes. Yep. And yes. the Mark One Focus 1.6 ZTEC. Yeah, good choice. Solid choice. The former two because they're underdogs, the, the, the latter because it is just the best of its class. So, what three Rovers would you own? What three Rovers would I own? Yeah. I'd have an SD1. Yeah. I would probably have a Rover Tomcat because they yep. are what they are. And I would probably, for pure usability, go for a 75 Tora. Nice. Yeah, the garage I work for, the dealership I work for, we used to have a Rover dealership as well. Yeah. And so we had the last of the, of the few, and they did have some odd quirks, like when you put the seat all the way back, it disconnected the wiring for the electric seat <laughs> switches, so you couldn't adjust the seat back and other things like this. But principally, they were a great car. And the MG versions of those, if, if you could choose one of those, I'd probably have yeah. the Mustang engine version you know you would, would who wouldn't who wouldn't exactly we are lucky that there, there have been quite a breadth of cars if you are willing to go for something a little bit more off-piste and ignore yeah. the scene tax that yeah. you get from as you rightfully pointed out with the, the blue oval on the front yeah if you're ready to deviate from these regular normal cars you can get a lot more car for your money a lot more classic for your money yeah because you're not paying for sort of the, the scene if that makes sense. You're paying for a car that you like. Is a, a Ford Escort Mexico really £20,000 better than a Hillman Avenger Tiger? No. No. One is hugely more fashionable and desirable. Mm, precisely. In the end, like we've said here, go for whatever floats your boat, whether that be something Italian. Dave, you like an Italian car, pretty little car. Might not yep. be the most, how should I say, is electronically reliable, potentially. Maybe the most charismatic of the cars that are out there, but undeniably beautiful 
and with a lot of potential back catalogue to look at if you can find something yes that tickles the pickle graham for you something volvo obviously uh well no for for purely utilitarian purposes yes the v70 carries on and carries on and will carry on beyond me i'm i've no doubt of that but uh you know my tastes i mean i it, it would have to be maserati it would have to be alfa romeo or a dragster or a dragster or some of the more interesting uh fiats of the 50s and 60s and there's lots of stuff out there uh, yeah, but a dragster. These days, I'm not sure that I can afford to run a blown 350 Chevy. It's going to cost an awful lot of money. But the point is, there's something out there for all of us. And regardless of what age you are, what your interest is, there's something out there. There'll always be someone that disagrees with you. And the best advice is just don't care what they say. Choose whose opinion you decide to value. But in the end, so long as you enjoy what you've got, that's all that matters. And I guess on that point it's probably time for me to say ben thank you so much for joining us and thank you for having me and if you want to find out some more about what ben is up to make sure that you look at classic retro and modern magazine which is available from most good news retailers or the classic retro and modern website so don't forget to check it out and otherwise we are at uk motor talk everywhere and of course if you want to see what we've been doing otherwise check out our youtube and of course check out our back catalog of podcasts and so from me mike goodbye from me graham goodbye see you soon well, nice to meet you, Ben. Until next time, chaps. And from me, Dave, goodbye. And uh, look forward to catching up with you next time. It's been great, Ben. Take care. See you soon. UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.